this reality that we are both insolent opponents apart from God's grace, but we are insolvent as opponents. We think we have some kind of force and ability to stand up against the God who made us. And when we pile a lot of us together or a whole culture together, we think we're really something. But we're not. And if there was ever a close reminder, uh, as we thought in Tampa, Temple Terrace last week, that the storm was coming up Tampa Bay and sadly turned the other way, uh, we thought many times this week, God blows his winds where he wants, and he reminds us of our weakness. And we pray for his mercy, but uh, in the brokenness and rebellion of his world, um, he shows who he is, even as Jesus showed his disciples uh, in the storm on the boat. And they cried out and said, Who is he? That even the winds and the waves obey him. Let's pray. Father, forgive us and dig out our ears all the way to our hearts that we might declare ourselves insolvent and broke and desperate that we might come to you without money and buy and drink and eat at the table today, knowing that we do nothing to receive the life, the new life you give us in Christ. Would you use your word this morning? Would you give us your eyes through your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before uh, I ask us to stand in just a moment to read the text, uh, If you grabbed one of the outlines, uh, I noted that we often worship using uh, the disciples' prayer, the Lord's Prayer, as it was read from the passage and then we were led in it. Uh, We often lead in worship, uh, as we will this morning in a few moments as we come to the table with the Apostles' Creed. And as we look back for the second time since I've been with you to Exodus chapter 20 and the 10 words of God to Moses, uh, without going into any depth, I just want to remind you that in our uh, covenant uh, understanding tradition, our Reformed tradition, that uh, the 10 words of the Ten Commandments are a major part of our catechisms uh, and, and our confessions. And Uh, and many churches have been for centuries read every time there's communion. And that's one of the reasons that I chose this text this morning. Uh, And we're going to be looking uh, for a second time at the Lord's Prayer next week. Uh, But I I just wanted to remind you that this is a deep-rooted thing, not only because it's God's Word, but what people have learned from it. Would you stand and honor God with your bodies? as we seek to hear by God's Spirit, His Word read and illuminated. Exodus 21 through 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work or your son or your daughter, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated, please. Just a brief uh, setting of the context of these words. Uh, I remind you, since uh, for a lot of years I forgot, and since I've started remembering, it's so helpful, I've said it before, that Genesis was given to Moses at the time of the Exodus. So Genesis was taught to the people of God during the Exodus to remind them of who they are, of who God is, how they got to Egypt, and why God was getting them out, and what it was all about. In Exodus 19, just before our chapter, at the beginning of Exodus 19, Moses from the Lord writes, On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be tra my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Exodus 19 
7 through 9. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, as Moses is going to go back and lead the people, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Remember those words. God says, I'm speaking to you in this cloud on the mountain that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Remember what's going on. Israel as a people have been hidden away, so to speak, in bondage for 400 years. Violence done against them. God sees and hears, and He is, so to speak, as He comes down, remaking them, turning the family that came from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob into a new people, a new nation that would be God's priests to mediate blessing to the world for all of those who would bless God as they see about Him and and hear about Him. God had before instituted covenants with His chosen, with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, His descendants, and He's now doing so with Moses and this newly delivered people who respond to His covenant demands and promises that they will do all that He has said. Now, I hope many of you have become, and if you haven't yet, that you will, to reading the Bible regularly in an ongoing way. One of the reasons that's so important is when you read a text like what I repeated and emphasized of God saying to Moses, I'm going to speak to you in the cloud, that the people may know I'm with you, and that the people might always listen to you, that you might go, wait a minute, that sounds like something else. And if this is the first time you've made the connection, uh, may it not be the last. In Matthew 17, it says the disciples, Peter, James, and John, that he took up on to the mountain of transfiguration, saw Jesus speaking with Moses and Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. You see the connection? God spoke from the cloud and all that's going on in the Sinai wilderness, saying to Moses that because of these signs that I give you, the ten words that I give you, the fearsomeness of my cloud and fire on the mountain, the people will know that I've been with you and they'll know they need to listen to you. And then Jesus goes up a mountain with three of the close disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they hear a voice from a cloud where Moses is along with Elijah and Jesus is conversing with them. And God intervenes from the cloud and said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. The one that Moses promised would come after him 
that you need not fear that he went away, who would be greater than him, has come and God has said of him, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And Christ is indeed Christ Jesus, the one greater than Moses. Indeed, far greater than Moses could begin to know. He's God's eternal word, God's eternal, eternally begotten, forever, constantly begotten, flowing out of his own essence, of the same essence, equal in power and authority, who took on flesh to walk among us without sin, to become a sacrifice greater than all the sacrifices that if you keep reading in Exodus that you'll see. That he, the sinless sacrifice, God himself in flesh, has the seal of God's approval as he has risen bodily from the dead and promised that we could come with him. If you grabbed an outline, uh, there's an error on the next uh, scripture verse. It's not 19, 1 and 2, but it's Exodus 20, 1 and 2, the first two verses of our text. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. We can't take time to go into it, but the whole book of Deuteronomy and here in Exodus, we see a flavor of it, are in the treaty form that was quite common when sovereign, suzerain kings, big kings, made treaties with vassal little kings. And they would always start with a preamble, and this is the preamble. Who's the one making this covenant? I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh your God. And what have I done? I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you out of death. I brought you out of persecution. I brought you out of slavery. And then comes the historical pro that is the historical prologue. This is what I did. And then come the stipulations. You shall have no, you shall not make, you shall not take the name. Remember the Sabbath day, honor your father and mother. And God is stepping into a sovereign agreement, a covenant. And he's teaching us to see and trust his plans, his promises, his ways. Uh, you may not have noticed it in one of the songs we sang earlier, uh, but it was a song about why we can trust Him, <laughs> uh, why we can have hope in Him, why we can trust Him. That's covenant language. It's because He is the Lord our God. He's the one who delivered us. He's the one who kept the promises to Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants. And He's trustworthy. And now what I want to stress, especially this morning, uh, is that Everybody on planet Earth is trusting somebody. And one of the great difficulties that I see in our day, being an old guy and having uh, grown up uh, as a little kid listening to radio and the shadow knows. Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. It was one of the early radio dramas. And then watching the little round black and white TV and then seeing the first color TV in the stores as people in Hamilton, Ohio, lined up to get a look at the first color TVs. And, and now we've got, uh, Steve, were you the one that mentioned iPods uh, a week or so? Yeah, and now we got even iPods. We have iPods! <laughs> but because of this, we have so many voices coming from so many places. And when the voices all gang up, that's what's going on in our country today. All the elite voices have decided, hey, we can have a lot more influence and make a lot more money if we gang up. Well, just because voices gang up doesn't mean we ought to believe them. The question is who you believe. And the call to all of us is to listen to the right voice. And I need to quote Calvin. Calvin made very clear, all truth is God's truth. And there's some truth in all of those voices. 
So if this gospel of Christ is new to you, don't think that, you know, we don't think anybody but us has anything to say because we're so stupid in our actions. I'm not calling you stupid. We're just stupid in our actions sometimes uh, that we think we know it all. We don't, but we all want to listen and find the voice that's worth listening to. And so what we're testifying to is that millions of people And it's true from almost every tribe and tongue and language already, and one day it will be true. Listen more to the words of Moses and Jesus than any other voice because they found it fits reality. And so I want you to briefly look with me this morning and the next week at the Lord's Prayer, not just as a list of things to do, but rather it's really a worldview that when we begin to see with God's eyes we begin to find out that God's eyes and God's world, words fit the world the way it really works. I mean, Jesus said, you know, uh, if you don't believe the words I say, uh, you know, do what I tell you to do and you'll find out it fits. You'll find out it works. Uh, and people all over the world continue to find out that that's true, that it bears fruit and it bears flourishing in a way that no other message does. And it's not because Christians are so great who was it, Gandhi, said, you know, I love your Jesus, I just don't think much of your Christians. Well, I want to say, Gandhi, uh, you were close, you just didn't go far enough. That Christians are those who have a longing to become like Jesus. We're not automatically better than anybody else. In fact, if we're not careful, we'll become arrogant. Instead of seeing that Jesus is so much greater than we are, which is the gospel in the way that we are to treat our neighbors So God's ten words to Moses are a worldview and they're an apologetic looking at what the world would be like as God's people learn to live like God lives as His Word and His Spirit is in them. So we're going to march very quickly in points one and two uh, through these commandments and I mean very quickly. I'll drive some of you nuts and some of you will say good. Verse three, as we see God and His world with the Lord who sees. You shall have no other gods before me. Yeah. This was in Moses' day both a cultural necessity and an apologetic because we humans are always trying to worship the familiar. We want to raise up one of our own to spiritize, so to speak, the physical creation while we're still hiding from the Creator who made us and it. And we need to see with the eyes of God who sees. And then we'll stop worshiping lesser things than Him and making less of ourselves by doing it. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. I've read it once. I'll let you read the rest of it. Uh, This was a necessity. What did the Israelites do in Sinai in the wilderness? They made a golden calf. Not, if you read the text closely, because they really thought the golden calf was their God, but they wanted to somehow make their God, the God Moses had been preaching to them about, closer to them. As Moses went up on the mountain, they felt all alone. They not only didn't see God, they couldn't see Moses. So let's make something in between that we understand. I mean, we learned a lot of this from the Egyptians, they said to one another. So they make a golden calf. Missing the whole point of what happened when Moses went up the mountain and God veiled himself in the cloud. I'm too big to be seen. I'm too scary to be seen. I'm too fiery to get close to. Without mercy, without sacrifices without priests intervening, and we need only one priest, God himself come in Jesus. 
We need to see with the eyes of God who sees. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. We, we throw that around, but it can mean a lot of different things. It's funny how this popped in my mind. Marinelle and I lived and we pastored in Tulsa for 12 years and so many wonderful people and wonderful things. But one of the saddest things that I heard uh, was about how when, uh, and I won't name the names, though some of you could figure it out, the heir apparent prominent son of uh, a man that was head of a great Christian institution uh, and ministry in Tulsa, uh, divorced his wife. In fact, we used to watch him and his first wife sing on TV, and we hadn't watched the show uh, for several years, and we happened to flip the channels in one morning, and it says, and he's going to sing with his wife. And after the commercial, they come up, and it's a different wife. Um, Mary and I are going like, what? Well, one of the leaders of one of the biggest ministries sending missionaries all over the world in the Word of Faith movement out of Tulsa had a word of knowledge and pronounced that it was okay for this man to divorce his first wife without biblical reason and to marry again. Brothers and sisters, that's taking the Lord's name in vain. I Maybe the Lord showed him that afterwards. I hope so. I'm not his judge. God is my judge and, and his. But when he, becomes, he became a Protestant pope, you know, he granted indulgences and cleansed the sin. You know, we, we all want to have a private pope that uh, can take care of us. But the reality is there's one voice to listen to. And we can't take his name and claim it and then use it to... Lord it over others. No pastor should do that. No group of elders should do that. And, and while we can beat up on the church for do that, guess what? Uh, there are all kinds of people naming and claiming uh, it for other movements, religious or some think they're non-religious, but they're religious that accrue power in the same kind of way. This is human sinfulness. This is not a matter of saying Christians are wonderful and everybody else is awful. No, guess what? We're all awful. We all would oppress God. We would all persecute God. We all want to shove Him out of the way so we can think better of ourselves than, than we deserve. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Uh, your worldview has an absolute creator, if you really understand the world God made. He guides. He guides our work. He models it for us. And He gives us rest. Remember the seventh day in Genesis never stops. It's not a 24-hour day, by the way. I'm not putting down the 24-hour view of the first six days, but, uh, but the seventh day is not 24 hours because God's rest doesn't stop. He lets Adam and Eve begin to you know, build on what he did, but he tells them once a week to stop and to remember that they must rest. They're not God. They're not the Creator. And we don't begin to have time to come into the differences that the Lord's Day, the first day of the week that we're in right now, is not the seventh day. There's too much to say, but the principle that is there for Israel in a specific Sabbath is there in reality for all believers for all time. We need to see with God's eyes. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Uh, God defines and orders family. He cares about, and we are to care about, widows and orphans and eunuchs. God has great compassion and calls us to have compassion for all the difficulties and confusions that don't fit. 
But if God is creator, we can't recreate the world and rename it in ways that he doesn't name it. And it's the foolishness of Christians to want to make that into a political party or a statement at times. It's the worst thing we could do. We come back to the Word of God, which rules over all, and equally offends all, as we have to figure out how to apply it. And I pray for wisdom in your hearing and in my words, because there's a tendency in the church today to not want to say some of these kinds of words. And I grapple with how to say them well that makes it clear to outsiders and insiders that I don't think I'm so special. I just happen to think that God's Word is the most special thing of all. And if it really is God's Word, then it's the scariest thing and the most wonderful thing in the world. We need to see with the eyes of God who sees. Second main heading, seeing your neighbor and your own heart with the Lord who sees. You shall not murder. God the Creator breathes the breath of life and creation into human beings. He declares when it's legitimate to take human life. He instructs, gives us wisdom regarding how to value human life. And think about it, the Lord's table is about this too. The Lord's table is about an ultimate death. The death of all deaths. The only righteous one who died when he didn't deserve the judgment of God, but he took willingly the judgment of God on himself, our judgment due us. And so this table is a life and death matter, and it teaches us to value one another, and we need desperately to see one another, our neighbors, our own hearts, with those eyes. You shall not commit adultery. Covenants, the ones that God makes, give us not only worship and respect of God, but they cause us to respect one another. The marriage covenant, which is a picture of Christ's love for His church, involves the giving of our bodies in marriage between a man and a woman, and not except for prayer, Paul says, withholding those bodies from one another. We need to see with the Lord's eyes uh, our neighbors and our own hearts and understand that the world may try to redefine marriage, but we're not preaching politics when we simply say God has spoken. And there's a bedrock reality. And we can love people that disagree with us. Does God command us to love and value every human being as one made in His image? You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Respect of persons as made in God's image. All persons. And just because we disagree with one another on some things doesn't mean we silence one another or think someone is less than we are because we think our grading on our curve, our ideas are better than their ideas. No, what all of us desperately need are God's ideas. Respect of the work of others. When we bear false witness against our neighbor uh, we hinder work. I mean, we have an advertising industry, not to mention the political ads that I wish weren't already flying, uh, where people are paid billions of dollars uh, to bear false witness against other people and to claim, well, it's okay because the end justifies the means. I mean, we've got to get this person elected or I've got to get elected. But the reality is that if I bear false witness, 
against you. I slander the image of God in you. And, and we need to be so careful about that. Uh, in the church, respecting others' works, loving others' reputations, not bearing false witness. Uh, this deserves a whole sermon, but I'm going to do, looking at the clock, a very quick aside. One of the things I'm so concerned about is our culture has swung in the direction of what started out of 19th century philosophy. I'm not going to go there, but it's a whole philosophical movement named in Britain emotivism where we evaluate everything by emotion. And, and I have watched in my years of pastoring where Christians so easily, instead of when someone, a brother or sister, offends them, instead of asking, is there anything they did or said that is biblically sin? We fall into the world's trap and say, I was offended so I can apply Matthew 18 and take a brother with me. One of the things we forget when you take a brother with you, and I've had this happen, where you take a brother with you to go confront a brother, and the brother who goes with you ends up confronting you when they hear the other side of the story. That's the way it's supposed to work. You know, and sometimes when it comes before the whole church, and we Presbyterians have fancy systems to make all of that work, and when they work well, I'm not criticizing them, sometimes when it all comes together, it doesn't look at all like what you thought it was going to look like. Because the goal of it all, in fact, we have good rules in Presbytery and General Assembly meetings, you know, that we won't speak in certain ways that allow emotions to rule over the Scripture and the ideas, where you can be ruled out of order by the moderator, you know, to get back to the issues. That's not because we just like parliamentary procedure. It's because we're going after the truth. And so we need to be so careful that we may know if we have deep hurts in our backgrounds that cause us to feel a certain way when somebody uses a certain tone or says something, something and we feel really hurt, that doesn't mean they sinned against us. It may, they may have sinned against us, but it may not be that at all. It may simply be that I've got a propensity uh, to feel hurt when somebody does that and what needs to be repented of is my weakness in responding to people in that way. And you know what? I hate to tell you this, but we're never going to always get it right. Which is why the biblical teaching on forbearance and loving one another and the unity of the body around the table is the center of it all. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, female servant, ox, we need to trust the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob who's come to us in Jesus to take care of us, not thinking we've got to take what somebody else has got or be envious of it. Don't miss how radical this worldview of what God is calling us to is. This isn't normal anywhere in the world without Jesus. It isn't normal in America. It isn't normal in, you name, the other country, the other culture where this kind of mutual respect amongst humans, it only comes from Jesus, and the best pagan thinkers know that, along with the best Christian thinkers. God and His ways are so much bigger than our blindness, so we need humility to not devour one another. Finally, seeing your seat at the Lord's table with the Lord, whose voice you listen to above all voices. C.S. Lewis in Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Cap Caspian, a chapter called The Return of the Lion, writes of Lucy Pevensey. She's the fourth and youngest child of those who went through the wardrobe uh, 
in the first volume of Lucy's being awakened from the deepest sleep you can imagine with the feeling that the voice she liked best in the world had been calling her name. Lewis writes, a circle of grass smooth as a lawn met her eyes with dark trees dancing all around it. And then, oh joy, for he was there, the huge lion shining white in the moonlight with his huge black shadow underneath him, which is Lewis's way of saying he was real, there's a shadow. But for the movement of his tail, he might have been a stone lion, but Lucy never thought of that. She never stopped to think whether he was a friendly lion or not. She rushed to him. She felt her heart would burst if she lost a moment. And the next thing she knew was that she was kissing him and putting her arms as far around his neck as she could and burying her face in the beautiful, rich silkiness of his mane. Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, sobbed Lucy, at last! The great beast rolled over on his side so that Lucy fell, half sitting, half lying between his front paws. He bent forward and just touched her nose with his tongue. His warm breath came all around her. She gazed up into the large, wise face. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you are older, little one, answered he. Not because you are? I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Because every year you grow, Aslan says to Lucy, you will find me bigger. Lewis is reminding us that's only true of God. I went back to my high school after 20 years and I couldn't believe how little the building was. But every time I go back to Jesus and really see him, he is so much bigger than I ever dreamed he could be. And his voice is so much more dear than any other voice. I could ever hear. And that's what this table is about. It is the Lord's table. And the amazing thing is he's the most important person at it. How easy do we make that about us? We think, well, I'm not ready to come to the table. Well, what if Jesus says, come, you're a sinner. Jesus says, come, you're a sinner. Are you willing to hear that? And in 1 Corinthians 11, I'm not going to take the time to read it as we move quickly to the table. When Paul is rebuking the Corinthian church for making a mess of that which ought to unite them, he tells them that they need to be careful coming to the table because they need to discern the body of Christ. And in the context, if we took time to exegete it, I could show you, that's both about the body of Christ on the cross And in the chapter, it's also that the body of Christ on the cross, Christ is the head of the body that's made up of every believer in this room along with the rest of us, the believers around the world. But we're the ones who are here. And and Paul says, you need to get things right with your brothers and sisters uh, and be humble and forbearing. and, uh, And yes, if you need help, get it straight. We need to walk well with one another because this body 
which is why local churches are the only places where believers can really be known. And, and America is, almost use language a pastor shouldn't use. We are such a stinking mess with believers thinking they can be independent believers and not be known and not have to be loyal to other believers and not have elders, yes, who falter, but who watch over them and who bear a weight of the church that non-elders will never understand. But we need one another because we've got to discern the body that we need to grow and belong, which is why this is not a little thing because it's no little Jesus at the head of the table. And if we see Him really big, we'll feel more welcome than we've ever felt. But boy, will we be humble next to one another, pastor and people alike. Let's go to the table.